Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Sasha Beslik here with me from Copenhagen. Welcome to my podcast, Sasha. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. I'm, I'm really grateful that our paths have, have crossed. Short intro, Sasha is an international financial expert known for promoting financial sustainability across the world. He has been ranked the world's most influential person within green finance. Sasha is a true sustainability pioneer who has, with passion, taken on several leading roles in the world of finance as head of responsible investments, as corporate governance, as CEO, and as head of sustainable finance. And today he's leading the sustainability work at the biggest Danish commercial pension company, PFA. His work has been recognized widely, for example, as a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, and he received a medal from the Swedish king also for outstanding contributions within environmental and sustainability theory. He's also the author of books. The latest one is Where the Money Tree Grows, and his weekly newsletter ESG on a Sunday is read widely by many impact makers around the world. Sasha, uh, First of all, thank you for the important work that you do uh, since at least two decades uh, and also for actually bringing a more sober and truthful perspective to everything that is sustainability. And I know that in the media, you're very often described as a person who's like tired of bullshit and, you know, disapproving of uh, some big companies' sustainability work and also disapproving of the economic system in which you also yourself operate. You know, it's like a world where greenwashing often like serves only to numb the some kind of a climate anxiety of, of the Western middle class, right? Yeah. So do, do you recognize yourself in this description that media is? Well, now, first of all, thank you for the introduction. It's, it's a very nice, you know, always when I listen to what I've done over the last 20 years, I'm thinking, yeah, I could have done more. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, I think your description of, of uh, you know, putting that in a, in a media context, yes, I am very straightforward person. And I, I usually I'm not afraid of saying what I think. And I, you know, both on a positive and negative side. And I think over the years, I've uh, being in the space for 20 year plus years, it's sort of, I, I've got, last couple of years, I'm, I've got very tired of, you know, um, reading and listening to things that are really not anchored in reality because it's just the marketing and PR. And maybe marketing PR serves the, the function of at least to some extent getting people to be on the right track. But if it gets too much of that, then it's not, it's diverting the focus, what needs to be done. And that is what is frustrating for me in many cases. Yes. And, and we've been moving around and establishing uh, processes and all of that, but I guess yourself, you're also asking like, when can we get to the real results fast? We are entering into the stage of, of age of results. So what are the results created by these investments? What are the results created by these companies in terms of the lowering emissions, improving working conditions, managing their supply chain? But what are the clear results? So, And I think what is interesting, but it's also a, a, a challenging thing, is that we are still in this mode of telling people that this is important, but not, you know, what does it actually create? And I think for the financial industry, sustainability, ESG, investment industry, the next 10 years will all be all about results, not about the process anymore, because the processes are something that we expected to 
so far have developed. If you look at the balance, financial balance sheets of the companies, what you would like to see is the, the climate balance sheet or a human rights balance sheet, or how does it actually look? What, what are the results? And this is something that is still missing. And uh, maybe, you know, this decade, it, it will be all about that. Maybe it will be about other things, but I hope that we can move things forward so we can get the clear result. Whatever these results are, look, they can be different. Even the small results are results, but I want to see the outcome of that. I've just recently been uh, to Sweden where every single person I know owns uh, an electric car. And I'm thinking, is this our response in our daily lives to kind of combat? Important but very symbolic uh, actions taken by individuals, you know, middle class uh, people in the Western world, basically tackling their anxiety or worry about where the climate is going on. And the simple solution for that is to do some symbolic actions, which actually are, in some cases, counterproductive uh, because they are not really addressing the systemic issue at hand. And this is sort of a, the response. And I'm not surprised by that because the so far response to the climate crisis or response to a non-functioning economic system that we are actually operating uh, has been very symbolic. So we change, we tweak some things and we make them a bit look a bit better. But in, in the essence, we are not changing anything. And electrical cars are example of that. And the reason why they are example of that is that if you look at the supply and demand, and if you look at the dependency of electrical vehicles to rare metals and cobalt and lithium and other things, uh, especially in regards to cobalt, uh, I've done this calculation like, I don't know, six years ago. And I think uh, by 2030, with this pace of expansion, the cobalt in, in Democratic Republic of Congo is gone. Uh, so it's, it is uh, the symbolic Western solution to systemic Western challenge. It's very symptomatic that we are doing it this way. And it is symptomatic because we are truly not addressing maybe this discussion about our economic model is, is far more important because it is that sort of a discourse that dominates our actions. And it dominates our actions from the outset that we still want to have a consumption-based and, and growth-based economies. And we want to have a scalable solutions, but these scalable solutions are dependent on natural resources that are not necessarily only reserved for us, and we deem them as reserved for us. And that's the that's my that's that's the problem that I'm trying to address. This kind of um, uh, age of easy growth and and uh, huge amounts of natural resources and cheap stuff and so on. It's of course it's over now, and uh, we are facing this huge situation of, of resource scarcity actually now. Uh, not enough of, of anything, actually. So whoever controls resources controls the world, right? So um, how do you see that situation developing? Uh? Look, it's like we have a multitude of challenges in front of us, and it's all, almost like we're on convergence point where these these different challenges, macro challenges, go into each other. So you have the, the population growth, you have uh, demographic changes in Western Europe. So one third of everybody living in the Western Europe 2030 will be over 65 years old. You have ongoing, you know, regional conflicts. Now the latest one between uh, Russia invading uh, Ukraine and uh, you may expect something happening in Taiwan and China very soon as well and some other parts as well, which is, and on a top of this, you have resource scarcity in many places. I mean, you have water scarcity, you have uh, uh, in Africa and other parts of the world crunch uh, in terms of the uh, food supply for various reasons. So, I mean, 
most of these things are actually pointing us, our civilization, and you know, predominant Western Anglo-Saxon narrative about solutions towards that systemic challenges we have, the systemic challenges we face, are so rife and so deep that that we are actually. Uh, almost like polishing the floors in Titanic. We really don't want to address systemic issues because they are, they are so so huge. I mean, there are no politicians in the world today that will go out and say, you know, uh, we are going to cut your pensions by 20% because we want to make a climate uh, investments that will save the future generation. And these are the things, these are, these are the boldness and the leadership we need, but that leadership is not there. And, and that is why probably that we have some of these systemic issues that we are just symbolically trying to sort of attack, but not really so. Uh, but Sasha, behind all important work, um, I mean, when you work in the field that you are, uh, there's a lot of frustrations, a lot of challenges and huge amounts of problems on the table all the time. And you pick up one by one and trying to resolve it, but then another one comes along, etc. So my my vision of things is often that that the solutions can be found not by looking at the pile of problems and picking up one by one but rather stretch yourself like you know 10 years from now and think about what is it can somebody uh, articulate can somebody formulate a new narrative which is not just a dream narrative but that is really something that we we together united could you know realize so what could that if if i might might ask you it's a big question i understand but you know what is like the future of that you would like to see let's say in 10 years how does it look like how does it feel like what i would expect and what i would sort of uh, appeal to is is the world that is far more balanced and just from the sort of a both social and environmental perspective the world that has understood the value of of uh, quality of life, not only the quantity, you know, of things that we have, maybe the world where we work less, where we have more time uh, to, uh, you know, meet and exchange views, uh, where we don't need to uh, consume to be happy, maybe the world that has more of a focus to uh, improve, truly improve the quality and balance of, of life. And this is now, when I tell you this, I, I immediately realize that, well, that applies to the Western middle-class world that we are sort of living. But still, you have, you know, the world with no poverty. You have all of these things that have been discussed in, you know, by United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, no poverty, um, people go, uh, children able to go to schools, all of these things that have been developed for the better of the world in the future. These 17 goals, they are fantastic. If we achieve, you know, 40% of these goals, the world will be a better place. So my sort of uh, work and what I'm trying to accomplish is to try to help as much as possible to move things in that, in my industry, in the financial industry, toward that direction. Um, so, it, it, you know, to sketch how it could look like, you know, the world where you don't need a, a military force, in a world where defense industry is not as big as it's today, where the, you know, the exchange of ideas, people energy and power is not done based on on a basis of of sort of a herding power but on a basis of needs uh, that people have in different parts of the world exchange of technologies you know for the better of humanity uh, it will entail things like uh, reshaping the corporate charters of the companies you know uh, what's the purpose of the of a corporation it will incorporate
incorporate the other way of looking at uh, the value of biodiversity that we uh, draw resources from, it will basically entail another view. You talk about this narrative, which is so interesting. It is a narrative where the balance between the humanity and the, the resources we have is truly balanced. It's not sort of a, we are not over-exploiting resources we have and we i mean this is nothing new we have knew this for a very very long time and uh, there are countries around the world in asia and latin america and africa that they will need to come to the pace of 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 development where we have been for the last maybe 50 60 100 years and we need to allow them to do that because if we don't do that uh, these people will remain uh, in a very bad place sasha going back to you um when somebody is so driven and motivated uh, over so many years around this important issue, it normally comes from some kind of, let's call it passion. So wh- how would you define your, your passion, you know, that thing that you're also really willing to suffer for if needed? Look, I mean, over the years, it has been a you know, blessing and a curse in a way because it is a passion. And I truly believe that it's all about people. It's, it's not about the systems. It's not about the corporations are people. And I've been in investment industry for so many years and we, we don't, we invest in companies. Yes, but we invest in people running companies and the ability to execute on the plans they have, on the strategies they have, on the product development they have. It's, it's their capacity, their ability. So it's all about people. For me, the people are the most, sort of a, the, the driver and the motivation. Uh, and the people that I met, I mean, I visited almost 80 countries around the world and i've met so many different people from you know different parts of the world with a genuinely uh, affected by many things both climate related social related and always in that interaction i find the motivation because if we can get things to move together as a species as a as a you know as a human beings uh, it actually makes my life uh, much more worth living and i experienced the war and during the war Balkans, uh, I realized how fragile the surface of civilization is and what does it actually mean, both on the positive and negative side. In, in the war, you can experience the worst things and about the humans, but also the best things. So um, the power is within us, you know. Um, as Yoda used to say, uh, the power is in with you. With you, young Padawan. Yes, it's, it's, it's us having that power, but we, we almost... Sometimes I think that we are, for some reason, too afraid to, to recognize that uh, and too afraid to sort of act on it. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and exactly. And I think this whole transformation that we are so desperately looking for in order to develop this you know, future that we'd like to see, it's really, uh, as you say, within us in the sense that to get in touch with yourself and understand uh, the power that we have, uh, the creativity and everything that we have inside of us that needs to kind of come forward. And I remember just a little um, a story from uh, one uh, chief of the indigenous people. Uh, his name is Oren Lyons. And he told me the story of him having a discussion on a huge panel on a conference uh, in the U.S. with the CEO of GM. And they were chatting on the che- on the scene and talking. And he asked uh, this GM CEO, he said, well, when actually does it happen? When does it happen that when you leave the door of your home and you go to the office, to your work and open that door, when do you stop being the father, the grandfather, the brother? When does that happen? And he was just pointing to that. And it was 
pure silence in the room for more than a minute before he regained his posture and could respond. And it was really pointing at the fact that everything we do during all 24 hours should be done from the same person. We are not you know, kind of defending ourselves by putting on a costume or putting on a professional role or something. We're just human beings playing a very important role and we have huge impact. So let's use it uh, all the time, not just some of the time. Yeah, but that, yeah, and I completely agree. I think that question was not only uh, uh, stunning, but it, it's also pointing out that we have created some kind of a, you know, perception world where we would like to be perceived in a certain way. I put on the suit and uh, I go to my office space and I make investment decisions that will deplete my children's future. And then I go home and then I read uh, the night bad stories for them. So how do you get that to work? And, you know, I think this mental construction has been, if you go back to the Second World War and to many other things, many other experiences, quite, quite tragic experiences, you can see that people can... Uh, we are we are astoundingly uh, good in separating uh, our different identities, which is a bit strange because in the core of us, in all core of us, there are always our values are always there. For some reason, we are not you know using that power, that energy that is within us. So the change is within us. It's not you know it's not pointing at the system. When I talk about the economic system, I talk about people working in the system. They need to change and improve the way how they you know how they look upon themselves and how they look upon others. You mentioned the, the Balkan wars, of course, that you um, were experiencing uh, when you were around 20 or something? Yeah, I was 19. 19 when I did that. 19, 20. Yeah, yeah. I managed to flee from the encircled city where I was living in my parents. I don't have a siblings. And uh, it was a very sort of a, a tough uh, fleeing ex experience because I was translating for two British journalists um, for a number of weeks. And then at the time when I received the call to join the military service and be sent to war, I uh, refused to do that. Uh, and I'm coming from uh, the, the uh, Molotov cocktail of ethnic uh, uh, background. Uh, I have all different kinds of ethnicities uh, in my family. So I uh, didn't want to sort of uh, participate in that. So I decided to leave. And during the, 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 the fleeing sort of a process, I was stopped and... Um, almost executed because the person that was that stopped me realized that I'm trying to desert from the army and uh, uh, I was saved my life was saved by a 10 packs of Marlboro and uh, that journalist handed over to this guy and uh, you know after that uh, it was a, a period of time when I spent on sleeping on a you know bus benches in parks in different parts of Croatia before I eventually managed to get myself onto the uh, refugee bus that took refugees all the way to Poland. And in Poland, I decided uh, I had no money. And uh, in principle, that was the, you know, the last sort of a thing that I could do. And I bought the ticket, the last money I had, I bought a ticket to uh, take me to Sweden. And at the time, the boats were going to UK. I don't know, they were boats going to US, New Zealand, all, all over the place. But I, I for some reason, I, I picked the first boat in the harbor, and that was for Sweden. So uh, I ended up in Sweden and uh, went to the refugee camp for about six to eight months, I don't remember anymore, and uh, got permit to stay, uh, went to learn Swedish, later on went to university and all of that. But what sort of uh, shaped my experience was 
both during the the time when I was in the conflict, uh, in the war, uh, experiencing that, uh, losing uh, my parents uh, and family basically lost everything, all the mat material resources. So we went from living a very at the time, you know, privileged life to live basically towards the end of the time before I left or fled. Uh, we were eating a, a, a cup of uh, rice a day, my parents and I. Uh, and then that was a sort of a loss of everything you have. What is, you know, what is important? What is really important? And then the second was when I fled that people were actually willing to go and give their life for me. Uh, they were willing. I mean, these journalists were basically risking their own life to save me. And then number three is when I lived in the uh, on the parks and these benches almost for two months, you know, trying to escape, trying to stay away from the police, eating when when maybe once, twice a week, taking a bath in the Adriatic Sea uh, in the winter just to get uh, the, <laughs> to be able to wash yourself, and then fleeing over to. Uh, to Zagreb and further on. And the third one was when, and I have very bad experience on this, and I will probably uh, not really ever forget that, was that when we came to, uh, we were we were running from, from the war and we were passing the Eastern Europe and on various borders we were crossing with these refugee buses, we were stopped by... Uh, Border police uh, in this in Poland uh, and in in, in Slovakia, and uh, the buses were held uh, for hours and hours and hours uh, because we didn't want to pay bribes to uh, get some of the persons on the bus further because they were lacking some documents and so on. They would always find somebody that was not really had all the papers. So, and then the the, the sort of um, the experience of coming to Sweden with that boat that night. Um, it was a boat full of refugees and full of people crossing between Poland and Sweden. And all of us, almost like guilty, were standing in the line to meet one single police person that was taking the record of our names and where we were coming from. And that feeling of being completely sort of uh, dehumanized, you know, refugees, you don't belong, you don't have anything, you, you, you sort of... And then experience of being accepted or given opportunity to to live a normal human life you know just to have access to food at the time for me was almost like uh, you know we came to this refugee camp and we got food three times a day it was it was it was heaven so so you have these sort of instances in my life where you, you and people are related to all of these things in various ways uh, a woman that will give me a, a a loaf of bread in a split harbor from from every second third day because she i i had nothing to eat and then you know the years later 20 years later when i'm going to uh I don't know, India or DRC or Latin America to assess how companies are taking responsibility. I actually understand what it means not to have. I understand what it means, what the person can do for a person, what the company can actually do for, for a small community or even, you know, for a country. Thank you, Sasha, for sharing uh, that. It was really important. In, and in terms of, you know, companies or businesses, um, they're like containers for a lot of good stuff as well that can happen, as you say, containers of, of beautiful people. What is like the long-term solution for business that you really believe in? It's complete reconstruction of our educational system. We have to be honest. I mean, 
I've over the years hired so many people from coming from a financial economic industry and so on. And I, we need to spend like a years of reprogramming them to deploy their values in the work they do. So I think, you know, going back to, we need to re restructure our educational system. We need to learn and educate people around the world in a completely different way that we're doing today. I think that's, this is one of our biggest challenges. Usually we talk about, you talk about CO2 emissions, okay? It's a consequence. And then you bring economists that has been educated that CO2 emissions are externalities. It has nothing to do with my business model. If you would educate that person from the beginning in a completely different way, with a completely different set of values, that will not be a question. That will be just a part of something we need to solve. So I think I, I have another view of, you know, long-term solutions and, and uh, in terms of what needs to be done. I think the education of leaders, uh, we have enough managers in the world, but we have very few leaders, especially in the business sector. And being true to your whatever, your north or your south or your east or your west, I mean, you have all these different programs. It's one thing, but I think it also needs to go back to your question that you asked earlier. You know, when do you stop being brother, father, husband, sister? You know, when are your values not your values anymore? When do you take this when you go and play in your own Hollywood film, you know, that, that's the, that's the question. If you would assume that, uh, you know, you have all kinds of doors open to you, have all kinds of resources available, uh, what would you then rush to innovate or change? Educational system is number one. Number two is to really have to put a very bright people around the world and, you know, ask them basically to look at the ways how we can run economies that are within the boundaries of the planetary sort of uh, restrictions we have. We have so many creative people, so many intelligent people, and then also work a lot with the uh, with restructuring of a legal framework that is around the world deployed today to justify some of these things. Because, you know, these things are legally, you have this discussion in, in, in my world, where I come from, financial world, uh, when people say, okay, what is morally right and what is legally correct? So you have this interpretation of the world we are in, which morally a person can think, well, maybe this is not morally 100% kosher. We should do it maybe, you know, it's not 100%, but legally we're not doing anything wrong. So we do a legal thing. So I think the legal restructuring of, of the role of the business definitely and working on education, working on leadership, imposing a, a completely different type of regulations that we have today. Uh, one of them I mentioned earlier, and I'm coming back to that, is that you have financial balance sheets of the companies, you should have a nature balance sheets, climate, social balance sheets of the companies that are equivalent to importance uh, in importance how companies are assessed. Regardless of what we say today, I mean, national governments are limited in ways how they can tackle some of these global challenges. But if you look at the financial industry and the financial toolbox, which is global, uh, you have access to completely different type of tools to actually impact some of these things. And you can clearly see that right now when you and I speak about that, you have this ongoing war in, in Ukraine and, and all of that. And the first response to that from the Western world is not to send you know, troops, boots on the ground. It's actually to put economic and financial sanctions on, on Russian Federation to sort of curb their ability. So that gives you just the implication of how finance, what kind of a toolbox that is. If you could give it one piece of advice to, to leaders, however you choose to define them, uh, what would it be? Ask yourself, what's the most important thing in your life? 
that would be the first sort of a thing. And then try to sort of respect that in everything you do in your everyday work. And what about yourself, like 15, 20 years ago? Any advice? Not to be so uh, always so impatient. Uh, I will certainly advise myself to keep my mouth uh, shut a bit too more often, because apparently the people who are doing that. Now I'm taking. I'm, I'm sort of telling you this from a perspective of of my sort of a straightforwardness and the, that I say what I think and I, I don't. I don't back. Uh, you know, from from challenging topics and so on has cost me a lot as well. It's been very costly for me. It has been. Uh, good for my integrity. It's good for my integrity has been very good because I've respected my integrity all the way. But for my career, if career is important, it was not always a good thing. So I would give myself a bit more. I would be a bit, probably a bit more balanced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But why? I mean, standing up for important things, is that not more important than... It is, but it's lonely. I can tell you one thing. It's very lonely. It's, it's, it's very, very lonely to... Uh, to be outside all the time, you know, to be outside and everywhere all the time, uh, it's not easy. It takes on your mental sort of a uh, health and it's also impacting your moods and, you know, it's impacting people around you. I mean, I, I don't think I'm the funniest person to be around, not for my kids, not for many of my friends, because I'm not really, uh, you know, uh, cool talk is not really what I get uh, kick off. And I usually bring topics to a table that are not really uh, always funny to discuss. So, and it is because I, I truly believe and I'm passionate about what I do, but it's also, it's not easy. It's, it's quite lonely. You know, uh, people used to say that somebody told me this once when you are aware in, in this sort of a space where I am, it can get very windy and uh, cold, uh, but food is most likely better. So it's, 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 I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm asking myself, you know, I'm not asking myself, is it, was it worth or is it worth doing it? But I'm just making a, you know, a statement that it's not always, uh, it's not always, um, it's lonely. But isn't, isn't it less lonely nowadays, given that more people have kind of come up uh, to be, uh, you know, additional heroes uh, and, and developing this into a life work and not a work? Yeah, it, you, you have this saying, it's easier to, when, when somebody does the revolution, everybody's revolutionary when the revolution is completed. The many people in this space today are doing what they're doing and for whatever reason, but it more looks like uh, they're doing it for making a career uh, because the offerings that you need to make today compared to what you need to make 20 years ago is a bit different. So with that said, I'm not saying that I'm sort of a, I have a patent on, on what it is the right thing to do it or not. But what I'm saying is that if you say sustainability and ESG as a, as a sort of a, sustainable transition of the world as a career path uh, instead of something that you truly believe in, you re really want to put extra effort to, then then it's, then becomes something else. I'm really sort of, a, I want to be clear on this. Uh, there are many wannabes in this space and uh, it's always like that. And that's fine. People find different motivations to do this. Uh, but I think what is necessary is that you have people with integrity. A couple of years ago, Uh, it was Paul Pullman who came out in Unilever and said, we're going to skip the quarterly reports because it's not sustainable. 
it's not sustainable. It's not giving the right signals to the markets. It's not giving the right signals to the investors and not allowing us to do the changes we need to do in our business, which is, you know, which is a perfectly fantastic leadership thing. And in from our side, some of us were expecting that, oh, this is a great leadership. We support that. We supported him publicly, you know, all different ways. And we wanted other companies to follow the suit. And uh, unfortunately, the... Um, the effect of that was that market was punishing Unilever for this, not giving them, you know, uh, a premium for that. So that gives you a bit of a feeling of where it is. So if you go to any large corporation today, sustainability is on the top of agenda. And then if you bring a, a topic <coughs> to them uh, and you say, okay, guys, sustainability is so important. So it's linked to your compensation schemes, remuneration, all of that. And now we're going to say that, you're going to stop quarterly reporting. This is a long-term thing. This is what you all talk about. Uh, they will say no. So is this this functional uh, view? It's, it's, it's sort of a yes, we do this, but as long as it doesn't hurt. If it hurts, we don't do it. Or if we can find a balance that it's giving us a good profit because we are sustainable and we really don't have to change our business model that much, that's the perfect sweet spot. But the fact is that we need to change business models. So it's a painful process. And I understand that many of the companies, people working in these companies have difficulties to do it, but that is what we need to do. What is the one most important thing for companies to focus on right now? How would you label that? It's results, showing the clear results, whatever the results are, and shifting their business models, shifting the incentive schemes, shifting the way how they view uh, the world uh, that they're operating in and what is their role and, and uh, you know, redefining the purpose of what they do. You know, on a narrative level, many companies will tell you, you know, we are, our purpose is to make the world a better place and to provide clients with these kind of services and so on. But if you look below the, the surface, you see that the way they, how they operate is actually not supporting that. So it is, you know, it's almost like a, what did they had in, in um, South Africa? They have this reconciliation thing after the apartheid. It's almost like a business community needs a reconciliation commission with nature, you know, to find a new ways to actually face what we have done and also, okay, agree on that. This was not good. And now we need to do it in another way. But right now, the narrative is that nobody's talking about what we have done so far is not being good. It's just, we're just talking about how to cut the emissions and we continue doing what we do. And that's that's the wrong way of doing it. And I don't think it will provide us with solutions we need because we need to sort of accept and, and take in, you know, and sort of accept it. It's not like a guilt, but it's more like a fact. Okay, what we've done so far was really not sustainable. And it does did not include externalities. And we have deployed in natural resources. We have used people. We have not paid them properly. We have disparity of, of income in a world that is sickening. I mean, you have 300 people owning more capital than 3.5 billion people on this planet. You can get them in three buses. So what I, I actually are we talking about? So these are the things that we need to sort of face. And then when we, when we accept it, we need to accept that we're sick. Hmm. Yeah, see, that's a hard thing for everybody. It's for me as well. You know, if somebody will tell me, yeah, you know, you need to accept that your mental state of mind is not really normal. So you need to accept that you're sick. It's very hard for us to do that. 
because you don't want to. It's it's a response. I'm not sick. I'm healthy. I I don't want to end up in a hospital. But maybe we need to accept that we have a, a condition that is not really uh, beneficial for ourselves in the long term, and we need to find a way out of it. Hmm. Yeah, and maybe the medicine to that sickness is number one, nature. Number two, go inside and uh, connect with yourself to understand uh, how to realize there's actually a new way to to live and to lead and to serve. Actually, yes, and I think what is what is also very interesting in uh, you know all the management sort of courses and all of these things that are, all the bright people around the world participate in. I think it's very little emphasis is given just just to the nature. What is our interconnection? Because we are the masters of universe. We master nature. And then when we have the storm or tornado or, you know, cyclone, then we realize, oh shit, we are so small. We we have no chance, you know. And this thing that some of us are saying to, I don't know, companies around the world, you know, climate emergency is a big thing. If it's gonna when it hit us, it's gonna hurt a lot. So it's sort of, we need to have a respect for that. But we aren't masters of universe, so we don't have respect and we don't want to have it. And that's what concerns me. Yeah. And going, going back to the uh, the guy I mentioned before in Lyons, uh, they have a lot of universal principles that they have always adhered to and also kind of kept in faith uh, for, for this generation. And one of them is really this this law of, of respect, to respect yourself and everything around you and the nature and all of that. And the other one is really sharing, the law of sharing. So it means really sharing everything we know, sharing everything we have, uh, that kind of approach that I think would be key. I'll give you an example from my sort of a time when I did one of these uh, uh, very interesting trips. I was the only banker that ever went to this North Dakota pipeline conflict, you know, up in a, in in Dakota in the northern U.S. And the reason why I went there is that at the time, the indigenous groups, uh, the First Nations that were affected by this pipeline, wrote a letter to my bank saying that we are uh, financing through our investments destruction of their life. And I actually packed my bags and I went there with a camera guy so I could film this. And I think I was the only financial person ever visited the, the camp of these people. Uh, it was minus 33 degrees. It was very cold, windy. I was there for a week. And uh, I, of course, met the companies that were involved in this. And they all provided me with a uh, you know, bunch of documents uh, indicating that the consultation has been done properly and thoroughly and uh, that these uh, indigenous groups were asked uh, for consent and da 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 all of that. And I had a I was sitting in a hotel in a in a very odd place in Dakota, and uh, it was freezing cold. And uh, I was trying to locate the leader of the protest from the First Nations, the the, the guy that was a chief in charge. And I couldn't I, I couldn't loc localize him. It was difficult to get a hold of him because he was you know they wanted to arrest him. And and finally, finally, after a week, I got I got access to him. And we had a short conversation. Uh, it's five minutes conversation, filmed actually. And I'm asking him, and I'm looking him into into his eyes, and I'm asking him, are these companies have the, uh, these companies that I had contact with consulted with him and the people that are affected by this pipeline? And uh, his answer to me, looking me straight into the eyes, was no. They have not talked to us. So all this trip, all these meetings all this spending and this interaction with that person, five minutes, 
And I packed my bags and, and went back home. And when I came back home, my proposal was that we should divest from these companies, and we did. So it is, you know, it is in the meeting. It's like when you actually meet people, you actually understand that, well, you know, ask a woman in fast fashion supply chain, works 13 hours a day, seven days a week, does she get a living wage paid? No. We know this. Consumers know that. But it's far away. It's Bangladesh, it's Pakistan, it's Cambodia, it's China, it's Vietnam, Thailand. I've been to all these places. And every time I meet these women, I'm thinking, you know, why? Why are we doing this? Why? We can do it in another way. And somehow we've, uh, I guess the, the answer for me at least is it must be that we, we've disconnected from the heart somehow. <laughs> we are part of the same fabric. Uh, it's, it's, we just need to, uh, we are, and we need to find a way how we can, you know, uh, refine that fabric. So my last question, Sasha, is what do you think the world needs most at this very time? Honesty. Words needs honesty. We live in a time of disinformation, you know, uh, false uh, social media, constructed realities. Uh, now we have companies called Meta, like Meta Worlds. In this world, I can be this person, and then in Meta World, I can put all of these, you know, things to who I am and who I want to be. And so, I think world needs honesty. We need to be honest, and honesty demands that we have integrity to take how bad it is, and also to 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 find the strength to the to to improve that. So I think honesty is very important. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks for sharing. And to find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing Sasha. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.